Our reading this morning in the first Advent series, or first sermon in the series, is from Matthew 1, and it will be verses 1 through 17. I'll be reading a portion of that, not all of it. And as you look in Matthew 1, you'll see this is a genealogy, okay, a list of a bunch of names. So why do we do a genealogy? So it's, it's not so that we can add up generation upon generation and arrive at the age of the earth and try to do something like that. It's not for punishment <laughs> that I'm going to make you suffer through this. And it's not to buy time because I don't have enough to say. Then why? Why are we doing a genealogy? We'll see shortly that there is absolute benefit in genealogies and in this wonderful, powerful passage that Matthew gives us. As we begin to read, we'll just say, let's focus on three titles, okay, that Matthew gives to Jesus. Jesus the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And the passage is kind of broken down around those. But if you would stand, we'll read verses 1 through 6, And then we'll jump down to 16 and 17. The word of the Lord, Matthew writes and God speaks to us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. I move to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So as we look at this passage that helps us to identify the identity of Christ, we might think about how is it that you find your identity? It could be in looks. It could be in sports. It could be some other talent. It could be your job. As I thought about that, I had to confess that... uh, Well, right now, my job outside of doing the church, helping with the church ministry here, I do have a job like a lot of the rest of you, is in technology. Didn't used to be that way, and my identity was so much wrapped up in my job. Don and I had just been married, uh, and it's about 20-some years ago. We were living in Columbia, South Carolina. I was working for a company out in Sandy Run, South Carolina. And people would ask me, what do you do for your job? And I did not want to say. So I'd say, oh, I work in a manufacturing plant. I said, well, 
What kind of manufacturing? Say, ah, food manufacturing. So let's talk about something. What do you mean, food manufacturing? I'd say, all right, all right, you got me? Enough. We make sausage casings. The world would be a better place without our sausage casings. We don't even make the sausages. We make sausage casings, and that's what I do. And Donna's mom would say, the Lord's just keeping you humble. He said, you are right, and I've had enough of the humble pie. So my, my identity was so wrapped up in this getting a better job. For others... It might be job, but it might be something else that you seek to find your identity to or from. So much in the, in the deep south, say in Mississippi and in Tennessee, often it's about who's your daddy? Who's your father? Who's your grandparents? What's your name? Do you have a marquee name? Because so often our family tree gives us our sense of identity. And your identity gives you your significance, and your significance gives you your mission, your purpose, your reason for living. But this morning, we're seeing your mission, my mission, is really based on someone else's identity. The identity of the one that we see here this morning. And our passage this morning deals with the parents and the great-grandfathers, and the great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. And it's not so that he could be proud of his lineage, because it was quite a checkered past. But there are reasons that Matthew gives us this, this genealogy. Partly so that we could look back and see Jesus came from quite a dysfunctional family, so that he could save dysfunctional sinners like you and me. And more importantly as well, we see that all of the past points forward to this one man. It pointed forward to Jesus. It's all about him and less about each one of them. In the different Gospels, we're looking at Matthew, but the different Gospels all give us some different picture some different angle of the diamond of Christ, the different cut clarity that we can see. John, for instance, he's going to focus in on showing that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in him, you can have eternal life. Luke gives a different genealogy. He goes all the way back to Adam, emphasizing this is the Savior for all men. All people, everywhere, every time. Mark, writing mostly to Gentiles, doesn't give a a genealogy. He's showing Jesus is the suffering servant. He's come to to serve and not to be served. But Matthew, Matthew is focusing in on mainly, not completely, a Jewish audience. And he wants to show them. You Jews who have put your faith in Christ, and you Jews who are considering putting your faith in Christ, this is the sovereign king, and he is worth it indeed. And so there is a powerful message for us to see this is the sovereign king come as an infant. And that picture, that that look at that diamond is one that Matthew is going to give us here. 
So as we look at the passage, if you look at just the first couple words, it starts off with the book of the genealogy. The book of the genealogy. In the Greek, Biblios Genesis, this goes back to, in Genesis, what we call the Septuagint, which was just the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Genesis 2 and Genesis 5, it uses those same words. Why does Matthew do that? He is saying this is a restart. Not that everything was a failure before, but here is the second Adam. He's going to restart humanity, and he will do everything perfectly. This is the beginning of a new creation. And then Matthew, after that, after the book of the genealogy, he gives us titles for Jesus. The first one, he says, this is about Jesus Christ. Jesus, that name above all names, means in the Hebrew, Joshua, Yeshua. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. And then Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus' title. It's his title. He was the Christ. He was the anointed one. He was the king. And we've seen this several times in the series on 1 Samuel where here comes an anointed king and they're consecrated with oil. They're set apart for a special purpose. And many of the Jews got that. Here's our anointed king. He will free us from Roman oppression. Yay, Jesus, we have a plan for your life. But whoops, we don't consecrate Jesus. God does. He's our Savior and our Lord. And, and for us to apply this, how often do we seek to do the same thing? Jesus, I came to you as my Savior, and I had all these problems. And I gave you my life, and now it's supposed to be easy from here on. But I still have these problems. Why am I experiencing suffering? Why am I being persecuted? Fix it, Jesus. I'm just supposed to start singing, Jesus, take the wheel, and all will be happy, happy. But it's not. So the issue is that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. He's our Savior and Lord. Yes, Isaiah says he's a gentle Savior. He says the bruised reed he will not break. Absolutely true. But he's also the Lion of Judah. He's the Lion of Judah who requires complete obedience as our anointed king and not the other way around where we seek to get him to submit to us. We are not the center. We are not the center of history. We live here in the year 2016, 2016 years A.D., Anno Domini. After the year of our Lord, that was the center of history. And though people now who don't like any kind of focus on Jesus whatsoever and can say, let's call this the Christian era. We'll call it CE and BCE and get rid of that reference to Christ in AD. We're still basing the years 2016 CE or whatever, after the biggest event in history. Christ come to be with his people. The next title that Matthew gives us, Son of David and then Son of Abraham. 
But in the passage, as we go through the son of Abraham, we'll look at that first because those are the, past, the, the verses that he gives us after that. The son of Abraham, uh, Matthew is pointing out that God saves by his sovereign grace. Focus on that grace. Matthew writes to Jews, but he wants people to realize that Jesus is also for all people. He is for the Gentiles as well. And if you remember when God called Abraham... Abraham was not a believer. He was not walking with God. God called him out of a pagan lifestyle, said, I will make you, and he gives him three blessings. One of those was, I will make you a blessing to all the families of the earth, to every family on the earth, and I'm going to accomplish a global purpose through you. And we see that in the lineage. That's what here before us. The names that are pointed out by Matthew is he's pointing out that this is coming from all peoples. We have Rahab, a Canaanite, Bathsheba, probably a Hittite, Ruth, a Moabite. This is a savior for all people. He's giving grace in spite of Israel's sin and even because of their sin to some extent. Not many of us in here are Jews. There may be a few who are completed Jews Likely our ancestors were years back worshipers of Zeus, Athena, Hermes, or some other dumb rock. And if God hadn't reached out to all the nations, we would be doing the same dumb thing. And as an application, you can think of this. Think of some club, some organization, which you desperately wanted. I want to be in this. I want access into this club or organization. Could have been a treehouse club for the young folks, a sports team, a drama production, a play. You wanted to be in it. You want that honor society in college or that cool best job down the road. But lo and behold, you get it. You thought I said you weren't going to get it. It's Christmas. You get it. You get the gift. You're in the club. You get the job, whatever it might be. But what do you do when you get that gift? Kind of two choices. You could say, honestly, I can't believe they let me in. The standards must be slipping. We'll need to tighten up and keep out all those other marginal characters so that this club, this team stays exclusive. Okay? Because you earned your way in. Or you say, honestly, I can't believe they let me in, and I'm so marginal. I need to make sure that all the other marginal folks, like me, get in and enjoy the same great blessings. That is what Matthew is saying here. You have all these marginal people. Jesus saves by his sovereign grace. People from every tongue, tribe, nation are welcomed in, and we should share it in the same way because it's bestowed on us by his sovereign grace. The next title he gives, Matthew gives to Jesus, he says he's the son of David. He saves by his sovereign grace and he saves for a sovereign purpose. And so before we look at the part here about David, just a, a quick note on uh, some literary devices, we'll say. In, in the Hebrew Bible, you would often have uh, 
uses of literary, literary devices. It might be an acrostic in a poem, like in Psalm 119, each of the verses starts with a certain letter alphabetically of the Hebrew Bible. Um, other uses of poetry that help to unlock keys to the meaning of Scripture. Okay? Now, now, what I'm not going to is to say that really the answer to the Bible is, is like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, okay? where you just have to look at this picture of uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus, and then you look at it this way and you realize, oh, based on this code, Mary Magdalene really married Jesus, and that's the key to the Bible. No, not say anything goofy like that, but here's one of the points that many scholars say. If you look at the last verse, why this mention of 14 generations, 14, 14, 14? Scholars will say this. In the Hebrew Bible, each letter had an alphabetic purpose. Okay, the D for Dalit, D, duh. Also, they are associated with a number. Okay, so the D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Vav, the V, or W is the sixth. And then you have a D again. Four plus six plus four is 14. You just do the consonants in the Hebrew alphabet. Or the, and so David's name adds up to 14. Hence the focus on 14, 14, 14. Because David in some sense is a, a, a bit of a center point in this passage. And the importance of David in his uh, kind of precursor look at Jesus. So if you wanted about that 14, that's one of the reasons that's important. But more, let's just focus in on what did it mean now for Jesus to be the son of David? Because that part is critical. It is critical. There, there are uh, nine times in Matthew that, uh, that uh, he refers to Jesus as the son of David. And it emphasizes a couple things. One, he was the long-awaited king who would come, he would defeat the powers of darkness forever. He would reign forever. Like in Tolkien's uh, series, where the long-awaited king, Aragorn, comes and he reigns forever. And Tolkien, though, does something else with Aragorn. A second point. He says prophetically in the book of Aragorn, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. So Tolkien's taking a scriptural principle and applying it to Aragorn because the son of David was the long-awaited king, but he also had the hands of a healer. And when Matthew shows this title being used for David later in the book, it's often around healing. And it's often around people who aren't even Jewish. There was a Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter, son of David, heal. Blind men, son of David, heal. Jesus had the hands of a healer, the healing touch. And the outsiders knew that. And they longed for the healing touch of the son of David. The insiders... The Pharisees, the scribes, they thought they knew who he was, and they just wanted him taken away. The children later cry out, Hosanna to who? Hosanna, son of David. The chief priests were indignant. Make them stop. The children get it. They get it. 
So the application, who won't? Who won't come to Christ? Those who don't need him. Those who think they don't need him. Who think they aren't sick. The doctor doesn't treat the patient who won't realize his need. We need to realize we need the healing touch of the son of David. But what happened? As we go through that lineage with David, what happened? There's a bunch of people uh, listed in there. Many kings, much nobility, many wicked. The evil ones were quite wicked. Ahaz worshipped pagan gods. Child sacrifice. Manasseh, even worse, none like him before. Even the good kings commit errors. Jehoshaphat, he makes alliances with with other wicked kings. Uh, Hezekiah boasts or shows off the treasures of Israel to pagan nations. So even the good ones made grave errors. But Jesus came not because of Israel's righteousness, but in spite of their sinfulness. Jesus didn't come to praise his forebears. He came to save them. And we see that, again, if we were to look through this whole lineage, plenty of, of, of issues in this dysfunctional family. Abraham, a polygamist. David, an adulterous murderer. Tamar, one of the women mentioned, guilty of incest. Rahab, a prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite, known for sexual immorality. Bathsheba, not even named an adulteress, but referred to as the wife of Uriah. So we have all this sin in here. And we also, though, have lots of ethnical diversity, women and non-Jews, because the family of God is open to outsiders. Jesus became the outsider so that we could become insiders. And again, this family tree is quite, quite crooked. It's not a nice straight pine tree. It's more like a a good old crooked live oak down in New Orleans or uh, Charleston with those limbs just going all over the place. This was a crooked family tree. And David was promised in 2 Samuel 7, you will have a king on the throne forever. But the Assyrians come and they conquer Israel and Babylon conquers Judah, deports their leaders So it looks like, whoa, is the word of God failed? Where's the king ruling? In exile, it looked like a failure. And that's the third section here, the list of the lineage going through the exile. But the exile was not the end. This leads up to Christ, and he will reign, and he is reigning forever. One thing also about Christ, he is not born in the same way as the others. If you look in the passage, say at the beginning, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. But then when it gets to Jesus, it says this, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. A different way that he is born, not the normal union of husband and wife. And he gives us, Matthew gives us different language to emphasize this. This is the incarnation. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not the normal union of husband and wife. Somehow in mystery, the Holy Spirit puts Jesus in the womb of Mary, 
This is different. And as Manton says, our Savior came in the incarnation in the nature of sinful men, but not with a sinful nature. He comes to be like us, but he does not have the sinful nature we have because the Holy Spirit takes care of that. And as Thomas Watson says, he was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. So this passage about this historical fact of Jesus' birth, the virgin birth, it challenges just the postmodern idea of what is true for you. Uh, it's not necessarily true for me. He records Jesus' historical objective fact for all. And we've talked about this in the, in the DNL class lately, about how often, so often we're, we're sharing with our friends, whatever, and they can say, oh, that's good for you. It might even be true, but I just don't believe it. And so that makes it false in this crazy relativistic age. Matthew says, no, this is truth. This is fact. God saves by his sovereign grace and he fulfills his purpose to bless all peoples. And back to that relativistic point and the fact around this. Michael Horton says this. He says, we need, or we needed, to receive an external word, something from without, It's from outside our hearts and to our hearts. One that stops our spin and gives us new hearts, even as it is spoken. In other words, our hearts, in their deceitfulness, create spiritualities, therapies, programs that arise out of our natural knowledge, which we distort. Outside our hearts... And at the core of special revelation is the surprising God known uniquely in his son. In the incarnation, he comes. And that's why why Horton says the gospel is scandalous and uses that word. Not because it's irrational, not because it's subjective, but because faith refuses to remain what he calls the Alcatraz of private opinion. It will not be shut up and imprisoned there in mere private opinion. The gospel is a scandal because of what it announces, a radical rescue operation for a radical problem, a radical rescue to address a radical problem. And as we, as we consider the end here, at the end of the genealogy, there are other names, in some sense, that could be in here. I think of the writer... Matthew, he could have eventually included his name to some extent because he became a child of God. He became co-heir with Christ. Matthew, a cheat, a tax collector, hated by many. Jesus calls him. Jesus saves him. He throws a party. He realizes, I'm one of those marginal characters. If they're letting me in, I want others in with me. He throws a party. Who does he know? He just knows a bunch of reprobates, a bunch of losers come to the party, just the type that know later we need a savior. So Matthew got it. He got the sovereign grace that's here in this incarnation. 
And he goes and lives with a purpose. And so for us, as we consider this, whether you're a believer for many years or considering, there is laid out for us essentially three choices. We can completely reject Christ, like King Herod, hate him, reject him. But Lewis says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can in his cell wall scribble darkness on the wall and blot out the sun. God will have his glory. So those, some could completely reject Christ. Or we can casually observe, there's the baby in the manger, wait outside the inn. What are all those people in there? Oh, we'll just kind of watch and see. That's kind of interesting what they're doing, but we won't take part. Or thirdly, we unconditionally follow. We take the path of the daring disciple. Whether we say, at our conversion, I give you Christ my all, I am yours, that's part of the daring disciple. But then years down the road, sometimes it may even get a bit harder. And we have to continually, continually rely on Christ to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him day by day. The choices that we are led to through the incarnation of the Savior. Would you pray with me?